again, that plagued with these thoughts of like, did I do enough? Which there's not any indication that I didn't. But it's my own sense of like, this is a woman who's done everything for me. Have I done enough to honor her in the time that I could? Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to I've Been Better. I'm your host, Susan Youngstead. Thanks for joining us on another episode in season seven. Um, I'm really excited for today's guest. I've been spending an increasingly amount of time with this person in my life over the last, I don't know, eight months or so, nine months. 10 Mm -hmm. months, you know, a year. So it's very exciting to get them onto the podcast as this was something we've been talking about for some time. Before we dive into that, just want to say thank you for everyone that's continued to support our podcast by sharing, liking us on Instagram or Facebook when we make a post, telling your friends and family about the episodes. You know, we really just love being able to hold a space for people to share the stories about their life. And we'd love for you to give us some feedback if you have anything you want to share. And we will be looking for some new guests to have on the podcast in the spring. We're going to take a break for the holidays and then we'll be back at it again. So looking forward to that. So now to today's episode, I am so excited to introduce y'all to my good friend, previous previous cohort member when we were in graduate school together, fellow member of the Dead Parents Club, and you know, just a fellow therapist in our community, Amanda Jones Stanforth. Welcome, Amanda. Hi, y'all. We're so glad to have Amanda. This is something we've been, as I said, a little while ago talking about for some time. Let me share a little bit about Amanda. Amanda is a fellow psychotherapist. Specifically, she's a licensed clinical social worker. And she, again, has a graduate degree from North Carolina State University. Go Go Wolfpack. Yes. We both graduated together in 2016. She is intensively trained in dialectical behavioral therapy, which is also known as DBT. She's very passionate about the clinical work she does, and she likes to maintain you know, her own positive and healthy relationships, but helps other people maintain those positive and healthy relationships and supporting the communities that mean a lot to her. She enjoys traveling, spending time with her husband, her dad, and her friends. She bakes, is learning more about cooking, spending time with pets, and exploring her new neighborhood. Um, And she also has an unhealthy obsession with Bravo and binge-worthy TV. Yes, 10 out of 10. Yes. Well, welcome, Amanda. I'm so glad to have you here today. Thanks so much. I'm so glad to be here. Yes, y'all. Amanda brought us treats this morning. So if there's any way to get in our good graces when you come in person for these podcast recordings, if you ever have the opportunity to be on the podcast or would like to be on, she went to this wonderful bakery we have in Raleigh called Layered Croissantery. Amazing. So shout out to them. We're like, plug them. You know, if you want to sponsor us, we're here. We're local. Um, They're so good. So that's a good way to get in our graces is bring us croissants. They're just the best. So good. And they have seasonal treats that they make every season. So they Mm -hmm. had the Halloween or fall stuff. And then they had the Thanksgiving stuff. And now we're on a Christmas. It's so good. It's so good. Awesome. Um, Amanda, tell us a little bit more about yourself other than what I have already said. Yeah, so I started my career in education. I am a double Wolfpack grad and graduated in elementary education with a mathematics concentration first. I was determined I want to be a teacher. and um, (laughs) That's funny. Things changed and then went to social work school at NC State and now kind of like do this work. I am A, really thankful to be here and also just really thankful. Susan kind of mentioned our like DPC group and I'm just really thankful for the community and support that that has been for those of you listening who are either a part of our club or also the larger DPC club. Mm -hmm. Just know that like 
we hear you, we feel you, we're with you in spirit. Yeah, we see you. Yeah. I think that's so important to say because we were just talking about that this morning, you know, my partner, Josh, who helps out with this podcast, he was like, now remind me how you know Amanda, you know, or whenever we have guests, he'll want a just a quick briefing of how these people have come into my life before mm-hmm. I dive into it on the podcast. And I was like, oh, you know, Amanda and I went to grad school together. So we've known each other for a while. But then, you know, we've stayed friends on Instagram and see each other here and there. And then I was like, and then her mom died, you know, in the last year, you know, a little bit over a year now. And I was like, you know, so I reached out to her and invited her into the group. And he was like, you know, I've, I always just found that so interesting that you have had so many people right in this little inner circle that you've known that are in this group right that we're everywhere yeah and that does seem to shock people when we are out in the big group like y'all we just went on um the great rally trolley tour on thursday (laughs) night yes uh there was about seven of us from our group and it was so much fun and you know sometimes people be like oh like what are you here for Mm -hmm. like we usually don't tell as many people mm-hmm. but when we do they're this like how do you all know each other or like someone will tell their parents or their co-workers or oh yeah i'm going to dpc and they're like what is that i'm like oh, yes. like dead parents club and of course some people are like very taken aback yes by such a blatant phrase mm-hmm. other people find that really interesting and thankfully really great and they're like how do you find each other and you're like you just do yeah and also we live among you we're here here. you just don't know about it because we don't talk about it all the time it's not like when we used to label people for like whatever category they fit (laughs) in right like we're not walking around with jock or yeah or something on our Mm -hmm. faces that say i'm part of this group we're everywhere oh my gosh it's so true i think also i was with someone kind of recently and we were talking about like a thing and like there's been a lot of loss in my life kind Mm -hmm. of throughout sort of the story of my life thus far and they're like are like all of your friends, someone who's lost a parent, like, do we need to hang out? And I was like, okay, haha, you're hilarious, but also it's going to happen to you too, fam. Right. Like, I love uh, you, mean it, but yeah. still. And also, there's a reason I associate myself with people who get it. Yeah, that's so true. Right. Like, no, not all my friends have had a parent who's died. You're like, okay, cool. Maybe I just really like those people yeah. and their parents have happened to die very soon recently. Unfortunately, yes. Right. And yeah, you're all going to be in this club one day, right? Mm-hmm. It's the club you never, ever want membership to but you're all going to get it. Right. It's the shittiest club ever, as we've talked about on many conversations and at many dinners before. Yes, absolutely. So So, yeah, yeah, you had started in elementary ed. How long were you a teacher before you decided like, this is not for me? Well, this is a journey. So I think for me, oh my gosh, I've thought about this a lot. I did not really experience failure in my life a whole lot as a kid. I don't know if that's because I just had like lower expectations <laughs> or if I just naturally like leaned into the things I was decently good at. Yeah. Um, sort of surrounded yourself with yes. successful opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I took a lot of pride in like being studious and really like reading and, you know, I enjoyed dance and while I liked it, I did it. And when I stopped liking it, I didn't do it anymore. Like I never had these dreams of like Juilliard or like, <laughs> you know, right. Singing. Those things weren't for me. Um, but so I think that also kind of like led to some like panic and fear around failure. And so I had decided when I was in high school, I was like, I'm going to be a high school English teacher. Because I loved books, and so that made sense I to me. I could see you as a high school English teacher, for sure. Thanks. And then I kind of thought about it. I was like, whoa, high school's intense. I don't know that I can deal with, like, the problems of high school all the time. Uh-huh. Jokes on me. We'll get to that later. <laughs> and so I was like, no, I'm going to do elementary school because I had this beautiful fifth grade year with these wonderful Aww. teachers. And so my junior and senior year of high school, I interned at my elementary school. And it was just this wonderful experience. Mind you, like, shout out to Amy Taylor and Mary Mitchell. They were top tier the best and it was just 
such a wonderful experience that I felt a tremendous amount of passion. And I'd always kind of done stuff with children. Like I did a lot of babysitting. I did a lot of like volunteer work and I did like camp counseling. And so it felt like this very natural fit. So because I wanted to be a teacher and I had not experienced a ton of failure, I like set my sights on the North Carolina Teaching Fellows Scholarship and I wanted to go to state and like check, check both of those things, got the scholarship to state and like... Then I'm in the elementary ed department, my like junior and senior year, and I graduate. I had the most phenomenal internship experience. My student teaching was with Julie Owens, and she taught fifth grade at Swift Creek Elementary. Mm. And the most fabulous team of teachers, like Monica Coles, who is still there and just amazing, and Mary Zardis was on the team. And I loved it. I had the most phenomenal experience working with these folks and with these kids and like there were challenges of course but I felt really supported and I felt just a lot of pride in my ability to do this so then you know you go to graduation you graduate you do your interviews you get hired yeah there's like a very strict like pathway for teachers with that fellowship for sure yeah and like I that was fine with me I like knew I wanted to teach and I was like I'm going to teach in North Carolina in public schools that's a different podcast we'll talk about that later (laughs) like love public schools love public school teachers love education altogether I could talk about that for forever but so then I got hired and out of school and for like the first time in a really long time struggled with this idea of like what am I doing have I totally effed myself and so I am teaching fifth grade which I love having really significant challenges in the classroom I was a first year teacher in a single trailer by myself with some like harder dynamics and I just felt I really felt out of place and I really struggled. And then with that came this wave of self-judgment and shame about like, how could I be doing this? Like I'm a teaching fellow. I should be better at this than I am. Like that expectation of that you should be able to handle, like you were saying, challenging dynamics in a classroom. The amount of stories I hear from people our age that are teachers or just local teachers in the community that are like, there's no support. They don't teach you about this in school. There's not a class on like how to navigate dynamics in a classroom without support from your school. It's true. And I think for me also, I have the blessing of time. And so that's allowed an opportunity for reflection and realizing that I probably as competent as I was in the curriculum and the process of teaching, I would have been more successful had I been in a building that had other teachers versus being genuinely alone for the vast majority of the day. That's wild. Um, And so like, and there were a thousand reasons as to like why that happened and they made sense at the time and there's no like ill will or hard feelings around it. But I think recognizing for myself things that I didn't understand then that I do now. And so I, again, like with this point of reflection, have been able to look back and be like, oh, I was depressed. That's what that was. (laughs) Like I was coming home. If you're a teacher, I think you'll know what this is. My like teacher bag full, my like canvas tote with just like, folders and folders of like uh-huh. things to be graded and lesson plans to write and like the ginormous laptop because it's also like back in the early 2010s when laptops were like 15 yes. pounds <laughs> and like you know all of that's coming home with me every night and I'd like leave school I would get there at like 8 30 we were a later start school for Wake County folks and I would leave school at like six or seven I would drive home would eat that's so late something like sometimes it was a bag of popcorn sometimes it was like some leftover I had, fl- like, uh-huh. you know, what's the word? P- 
pilfered for yeah. in the like cabinet. <laughs> what is in here? Yes. You know, I there. Who knows? And would sit on the couch to like quote unquote relax. Would pass out probably eight eight thirty. Would yeah. wake up at about two a.m. Realize, oh, I'm like passed out in the recliner. Walk myself back to bed. Fall asleep. Do it all over again. Like just bananas. I was not doing super well connecting with friends and relationships. I just, you name it, was not great. And so anyway, stay at that school for two years. Again, have a lot of respect and a lot of love for a lot of the folks there. And this opportunity came up for me to go back to Swift Creek, which is where I had done my student teaching and Mm -hmm. work with the same team. And I was like, God, if this ain't a sign, like we're going to do it and just see where this goes. Um, And so I was able, I interviewed and they were very gracious and offered me the position. And so I moved back um, for my third year. So we're like in year three of a teaching fellow scholarship, by the way, is a four year commitment. So because they pay for like a portion of your four years of undergrad, you owe four years to the state. That makes sense. And so in my mind, I also started kind of having this awakening of like, oh, can I do this forever? Because if you had asked me as a senior in high school or as a senior in like college, I would have told you, I'm going to do this until I am like gray. I'm I'm going to retire from this. I'm going to be bested in the system. Like, well, this is that is what you my... had been exposed to? Like, you grew up in Eastern North Carolina. Was yeah. there a lot of, like, longevity? Oh, 100%. Oh, yeah. Well, and, like, my dad is a perfect example of that, where, you know, he, you know, finished the degree that he has, and he, like, took on this job and, like, worked his way up to buying the building supply that he owns. And that is has been his job his entire life. You know, like, it's really cute. If you know my dad, he has these, like, gray Carhartt shirts he wears, and they're, like, monogrammed with Riverbank Bill, and, like, he wears them just about every single day except Sunday, but more in the afternoon on Sundays. Like, <laughs> church clothes, and then back to the basics. Exactly. Yes. And so, like, and that's another piece of it, right, is, like, in this community in which I grew up, that's just kind of the norm, and mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that, but also those folks saw me as a teacher. Like I remember this is like such a blip of a story, but I remember being asked to do one of the readings at the Christmas Eve service (gasps) because I had the teacher voice. Yeah. Like that commanding presence that gets people to listen and you're very, uh, entertaining is not the word I want. What are my engaging? Yeah. I think some folks. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, I think for me, it was this kind of identification of my persona And so the idea of like losing that and like failing at it, this idea of like, this is what I'm going to do. These are the people who have invested in me and now Mm -hmm. I'm going to like screw that up. So I'd like started this kind of question in my head of like, "Uh, can I do this forever? I don't know. And so that's part of where like Swift Creek kind of became an option because like, okay, well, if I can't stick it out there, then I probably need to like really look at some other options. And I was giving myself like my four year timeline to like get it together. And I was looking into like grad school programs online and overseas, all kinds of things. Oh, wow. And so I ended up going to Swift Creek. Again, really wonderful staff, really wonderful kids and families. Like I have no regrets about that. And again, just wasn't happy. And also like, I don't know if y'all know this, in the state of North Carolina, there's data that's determined about teachers and their success rates. And that's based on historically a student or a school's EOG scores. And so while like my class was really respectful and the vast majority of the specials teachers really loved my classes and I could always find a sub because my kids were just like historically really lovely, even with their challenges, my evals data wasn't great. Yeah. And so it's like, well, the data is showing me that like I may be a 
good person and I may be good at fostering some of this, but I'm not good at the job of teaching Yeah, and kind of seeing the writing on the wall about like, this is going to become more prominent. And so I made the decision. I started applying to grad schools and I'd realized that I couldn't go overseas. Fun fact to get licensed in North Carolina and like the majority of the places in the States, your degree has to be 60 hours from an accredited university. And the majority of the ones in the UK, especially are 45 no shit yeah I so didn't know that I was like hell bent and determined that I was gonna like live abroad and do yeah. this and I was like oh shattered okay that's but. actually super helpful I see young people right that are thinking about what they want to do mm-hmm. and a handful of them do want to go on to be you yeah. know, social workers or masters in education of mental health counseling or mm-hmm. something like that I had no idea that you couldn't go get it overseas and then come back so i tend to be like a, a little bit neurotic susan can laugh about that and that's fine <laughs> um you I, said it I did not I know it's fine and in this kind of thought, I had figured, okay, so I like kids. I'm pretty good at that. And I want to help kids and families. Who are people that do that? And so had done some Googling around like child therapist. And a lot of them had the letters LCSW behind their name. And so then I was like backtracking. Okay, well, what is this? How yeah. do you get one of those? What does that look like? And that led to the search around like getting your master's in social work. And how does that kind of play out over the course of time? Um, so anyway, that was like the sense of... I'm going to take this huge leap, this big financial thing that I hadn't had to do before thanks to the scholarship from teaching fellows and put myself out there in a way that really sets me up for the possibility of failure. And my parents, who are just so wonderful and lovely, were confused about the experience to be like gentle because, one, you know, they saw this version of me that was a good teacher, right? Like, and, mm-hmm. you know, had seen, you know, kind of cards from students and things like that, that indicated that I was good at my job. And so when I'm like, but I'm not, they're like, we don't understand, understand. that it doesn't make any sense to us. Well, and I feel them, right? The idea yeah. that we do judge teachers on the score that their 25 plus students have on an EOG or an end of year yeah. exam is kind of like, that's, I mean, I mean, we do that in general, right? We make students take like GREs yeah. and MCATs and all these other entrance exams, mm-hmm. and that determines their worthiness sure. or value to get into schools. Absolutely. And it's like, why are we judging teachers' capabilities on a student not doing well on a standardized test when, I don't know, what have we all figured out now that like not everyone's good at taking tests? Well, right. And then like, I mean, not to go on the social justice front, but to go on the social justice front, how many of these standardized tests have like this embedded core of systemic racism in like how they're presented and the access to them? Yeah. So. Well, and they just are a bunch uh, of bullshit. I don't know. They don't. They don't. I don't remember anything from any EOG I ever took in my entire life. Okay. Don't really feel like it helped me. And I feel like I can also say this as someone who is a pretty solid test taker, like my GRE scores were like solid and I made a 1020 on the SAT in the seventh grade. So like. That's incredible. Thank you. Um, it's a point of pride. It's fine. Again, the things I was concerned about don't really matter now in adulthood. But like at the time, <laughs> I was like, hell yeah. But so like, it doesn't, that doesn't matter. But it meant so much. Yeah. And so. Well, especially back then too. What ugh. year is this? You said when, when you're switching to Swift so Creek, what is that? That would have been 2012. Yeah, that makes sense. That was like that summer. And also too, for those who may be kind of like questioning, am I struggling with depression? Is this a thing that's real? Like, one, my appetite was trash because it just was. And my, like, body was reacting to it in some negative ways because I wasn't eating consistently or well. My sleep was also all over the place. I was having what I've now been able to determine were, like, these passive suicidal thoughts of, like, 
things would just be better if I wasn't here. I don't know if I can make it. And at the time, I was like, oh, you're just sleepy. Or like, your job is hard. Everyone told you. And I'm like, oh, no, fam. I was like legit depressed and didn't know. Yeah. And Um, you're not supposed to just suck it up and deal with that. No. And that's, I have so many feelings about the hustle mindset. And I, it's a duality where I can see both pieces of it. And oh my gosh, the way in which people like push themselves in things that are really, sometimes really harmful for them just breaks my heart. But so, you know, it was this first real taste of failure for me because this thing that I thought I knew I wanted to do, I'm coming to terms with and grieving the loss of that image and what I think that means and why I think that's important for me. So... In all of this, you know, then I, again, you know, I applied to schools. I wanted to go to state because I wanted to stay in Raleigh because I felt like Raleigh was my long-term kind of home Mm -hmm. and wanted to build relationships here. And then started the program at state, had the internships that I wanted to. Where did, where were you your first year? So I was at Haven House. That's right. Okay. And I was working kind of all over the place. Like I was pretty predominantly with the juvenile diversion team. Yeah. Um, and for folks who don't know, Haven House is a nonprofit in Raleigh that works on supporting, you know, youth who are kind of on the precipice of having a lot of struggles and offering supports in the community. There's second round boxing, there's juvenile assessment team and juvenile diversion team. At the time, they also offered students for success, which was an after school program that helped with like both emotional regulation skills and also like time management and skill success and then multi-systemic therapy for folks who like know about that process as well. And so in this um, working again with youth, feeling really excited and really like motivated for that, the diversion team works with students who are at risk for being involved in juvenile justice Mm -hmm. and offering supports to the like student at the time and families to support them and like hopefully navigating outside of that system and not being, kind of pushed into participation, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, then, like you said, giving them access to resources that they potentially wouldn't have had access to otherwise, which yeah. would have meant they would end up in the system, which right. is what we're trying to prevent. For sure. The school to prison pipeline is real and working really hard to kind of push against that and some of the patterns present within that system. Um, and then second year, I did my internship at the UNC Child and Adolescent Outpatient Program Yes, on the Dorothea Dix campus. And that is a program run through UNC's School of Medicine. Their psychiatric child fellows do their do their kind of like final externship there. Um, and so it's this really phenomenal model. But both um, the psychiatrists who are in training and social workers and school psychologists can do an internship there. And it oh, builds this like dual support for families because while the child is receiving therapy services at the same time the parents are also doing therapy with another therapist i love that so much i wish that was required everywhere agreed and it just i think it has these really wonderful like rates of success but also just a richer opportunity for families to see the kind of change they're looking for Mm -hmm. and also because of what's provided there's opportunity for access to medicine through kind of a 
a branch that's run out of the UNC Wake book, or at least was at the time. And then for a full psychological evaluation, that's done and monitored by the folks that are kind of the head of that department. So just this really phenomenal experience and also this really rich clinical experience. Mm -hmm. We had just a tremendous number of like readings and discussions and so would highly recommend. But again, for me, what it was reflective of is this idea of success. That's the externship I wanted. It's they usually historically didn't accept a lot of NC State students. They accepted three all three of us that applied got it. That's great. Um, and there was an additional UNC student, also a genuinely lovely person. Um, and so we just had such a rich clinical experience and opportunity to feel so much more ready clinically yeah. for the work that we then did post-grad school. And like student, uh, Susan and I can talk about that. What that experience was, was transitioning from students to then being clinicians, which mm-hmm. was a pretty sharp divide. <laughs> It's like a whole new world, right? And again, like we went to school for social work. And so like our focus at the time, NC State does not offer a track for Mm -hmm. clinical. You know, you look at some schools like UNC or some of maybe those larger schools, more like well-known ranked schools for a social work program. also has like specific clinical tracks and like various like themes of structure. Correct. Yeah. And state offers the courses, but it's not a track. It's a generalist program. Mm -hmm. And so I think when, and as Amanda was mentioning, you know, our First year internship, people are sort of feeling out what it is they want to do. Do they want to do macro? Do they want to do micro? What do they really want to do? Second year, you're really supposed to try to hone in and like, okay, yeah. do you want to do clinical, nonprofit? Like, what is it you want to do? I'm over here being like, I don't know. I tried, you know, working for uh, Child Protective Services. That was a no. Left that pretty quick. <laughs> then I went into nonprofits, love nonprofits. I have a nonprofit degree from undergrad. So I was like, this will be great. Mm-hmm. But I always knew I wanted to do, as Amanda was mentioning, like clinical social work. So I actually like sit in a room and do therapy. Yeah. And so, and, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, however you look at it, going from being a student and sort of being a career student in many ways, yeah. like then you actually are thrown to wolves being <laughs> a clinician. You're like, oh my God, I actually have to help people. Yes. Yeah. And be in the room by myself with yeah. someone and like, you're going to let me do this a lot before I talk with my supervisor. <laughs> All is this week real? before I talk to somebody? Why am I not talking after every single session? And our supervision looks very different, right? Yes. So we, and we've talked on this podcast a handful of times. I've been able to have the honor of having other LCSWs on this podcast. And we'll talk about how LCSWs have different requirements than someone who's getting a master's in education and mental health counseling. Yes. They come out with different supervision requirements to get licensure. Um, and so we could talk about that all day, like Amanda said earlier, different podcasts. But again, like we were sort of just expected to kind of know what to do and go out and do yeah. it. And as Amanda was saying, you know, coming from being a teacher where you already felt like, oh, I thought I knew what I was doing and thought I was really good at it to then be shown, oh, I'm not that good at it. <laughs> I can imagine now you're like, okay, what if that happens again? Yes. Yes. With this new job. A hundred percent. And the stakes are higher, to be yeah. frank. You know, <laughs> it's like this... someone's life. In my right. um, which then like, exponentially increased because when I first started so the place that Susan and I actually we worked together oh, after I grad like school I forgot about that in my intro I was like oh yeah we actually were co-workers too well because we did like two similar but different jobs and so yes. we didn't get to see each other a ton but like also it's so wild and so at that job I was building a caseload and there were a lot of pieces behind this but then was recommended to do dialectical behavior therapy training which I was like sure I'm down for anything like yep. please me tell me I'm gonna figure it out And that particular therapy model is most frequently used in the triangle for folks, especially in community mental health, who are 
suicidal Mm -hmm. or have a personality disorder. And so you want to talk about like the stakes dramatically shifting (laughs) from like, oh, I'm teaching y'all fractions to like, oh, I'm very much so working to help you stay alive. Yeah. And there's not a test at the end that's like, okay, did you pass your EOG and am I a good teacher? Mm -hmm. No, it's like, can I keep you alive? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, so then I'm like fielding the 3 a.m. phone calls from clients in crisis. I don't miss that one bit. Hard no. (laughs) No. (laughs) And very much so again, like it's not. It's not the clients. Y'all. It's never really the people. It's no, always it's our, the system. It's the system. Yeah. Our structure for mental health services and treatment is just so fucked. A hundred percent. I'm working to not use curse words because I have a sneaking suspicion. Some of my dad's friends may hear this. And so, so I'm trying everyone know that this is Susan speaking. I'm the one <laughs> using curse words. Amanda's being very professional. No, you're fine. I, again, I'm, that's the only reason that I'm like, mm, be mindful of that, Amanda. <laughs> um, but so, yeah. And you know, again, like, okay, I'm in this world, I'm doing individual therapy, that's what I want to do. I'm working with youth and children. And I am exhausted. Yeah, you're like, shit, here we are again. Yes. Yeah. Was there this like parallel experience for you of being like, I thought I was getting away from something that was going to make me so exhausted. And now I'm exhausted again. And this question of am I failing all over again? Have I made another terrible mistake? When you had considered that a failure, when you were leaving swift creek or whatever job you had held when you went into grad school Mm -hmm. was there this moment you're like okay i've failed that and i will come to terms with that yes and a lot of that initially was compartmentalization i'm going to take that and shove it in a box and And throw it in the attic of my mind and never look at it again nope um so no a hundred percent and i think that's part of where starting at that point to realize maybe it's maybe it's not a failure. Maybe it's something else. Like maybe my beliefs around that word and the words around success aren't what I thought they were, but it wasn't, I hadn't totally figured that out yet. It was more just kind of a curiosity at that moment about why am I feeling this way? What's coming up for me about this? Why is this showing up again? And so, you know, then transitioned for a host of life reasons, left my position in community mental health again, some of my coworkers there are still some of my very favorite people today. Mm-hmm. And, I'm and we so, have some amazing yeah. and incredible clinicians who continue to work in community mental health. Yes. Godspeed to them. Like, I wish I could have stayed mm-hmm. in that world. It just wasn't for me. I've also realized, and this has taken me a while too, and I wonder, Susan, if you've had a similar experience, I can I can support that community in different ways without having to remain in community mental health, which for me at the time... And now as well, I don't know that I could balance that in my own mental health Mm -hmm. effectively. And so having to come to my own terms of like, how can I still support this population and my coworkers at the time who I love and trust and care for deeply without sacrificing my own health and Mm -hmm. needs in Mm -hmm. this space? Yeah, I relate a lot to that, especially around that I think the models of treatment that community mental health offers and you know mm-hmm. be- increases the accessibility rate for certain populations of people yes. it has to exist you know i mm-hmm. believe that we need it and it was just very difficult you know that was around the time that my dad was very sick and yes. then died when i worked in community mental health and i just remember being like i don't know that i can continue to be in this space and <clears throat> to do this work where i mean we were severely underpaid mm-hmm. to be helping people in crisis as amanda was saying you know my role was 365 24 7 crisis Mm -hmm. and i was severely underpaid 
helping and I worked with kids specifically Mm -hmm. and it was chaos and I think you know there's a time and a place for that type of work and then there were people that were did it for 20 plus years because their lives just supported that type of therapy model and that type of career and that was not mine a hundred percent and I think too you mentioned like the job being 24 7 and I wonder when you shifted out of community mental health after mm, a few months did you notice this sense of like, oh, I can I can go to the movies and I don't have to have my phone phone side up to see if it goes off. Yep. Or like I could theoretically put my phone on silent and go to bed. And not have to worry about it whatsoever. And what's gonna happen? Yep. And so I mean, that's also a different story because I don't feel that way anymore. But like, again, separate DPC conversation. Um, but yeah, because there was this constant looming present of I have to be available I have to be able to respond and I don't think I conceptualized how much that impacted me Mm -hmm. until I'd been out of that system for a minute yep oh yeah it's taken me I've been in outpatient therapy now for four years Mm -hmm. since I left and it is a world of a difference I actually have like weekends and I don't think (laughs) about you know I love my clients shout out to all of you you know you're all incredible people and I don't think about you yeah very often on the weekends unless there is something going on in your life that Mm -hmm. it might crop up from time to time but I don't have that high level of I've got to have my phone on I've got to be available I've got to answer you know I'm a supervisor now so that's a little bit different Mm -hmm. so I do have supervisees who I'm available for um, but it's just not the same level of pressure for sure that existed before for sure. Well, I mean, there was the 15 minute window. Or oh, I yeah. don't know if like, right. Yep. Where Your voicemail, liter- my voicemail still says that if I do, you don't hear back from me, I think within a certain amount of time, you need to call 911. Oh, that's good. I definitely line. changed that. The minute I like set it up after like leaving, I was like, this is not a crisis line. If you are having it, experiencing a medical emergency. I think that's what mine says now. You're absolutely right. And no longer, but yeah, if y'all ever called oh. Amanda or I back in 2015, 16, 17, no, we graduated in 2016, so that makes sense. Yeah. So 17, 18, 19, we, our voicemails would have said, you know, mm-hmm. you've reached the voicemail of Susan Youngstead, licensed clinical social worker associate at the time. If this yes. is a life-threatening <laughs> emergency and you do not hear back from me within 15 minutes, please contact my supervisor and then your supervisor's number. And then I would say, mm-hmm. and then if you still don't hear back from us, please, please call 911 or go to your local crisis location, which was like UNC Wakebrook or Holly Hill. Yep. And it's like, this is insane. 100%. <laughs> Well, and it just, yeah, I mean, the hypervigilance around that. And I think, too, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but how that also has shown up in grief, especially if you've had a parent whose illness is increasing, Mm -hmm. that awareness of where is my phone, where is my connection to this information, and managing that at the same time. Mm Mm-hmm. So you're working in community mental health, being yeah. trained in DBT, yes. recognizing that the opportunity for quote unquote failure has now reached mm-hmm. a whole nother playing field, mm-hmm. right? Run much higher stakes. How are you reckoning with this idea of failure and success? I think at the time success meant, again, time away from this and for reflection has been very important. At the time, success meant meeting my metrics. Mm-hmm. Was I seeing enough clients? Was I able to put enough money towards my student loans? Because fun Were they fact, staying alive? Didn't have them from undergrad, but had them for grad school. Oh, shock. Are my clients showing up to appointments? Mm-hmm. Am I like able to track their safety? Are they meeting their goals? Mm-hmm. And this over-personalization 
around someone else's behavior or needs being a reflection of mine. And, you know, again, can link that back to now this belief of like my students' scores were a reflection of me. I'm a bad teacher because Susie did not get a three. Right. This wonderful, precious, precocious child who I would certainly be like absolutely ready for sixth grade. Their EOG says, well, they made a one because they overthought their EOG and undid correct answers to circle wrong ones. That's That's a true story. I vividly remember that child and like the sobs that I sobbed on their behalf because I just knew how hard they had worked and the sense of like, "Ah, this test is so pointless. But, you know, again, that connection and that belief of this is what that means to be successful or Mm -hmm. this is what it means to be good at something and that's why this is important versus that doesn't really matter Mm -hmm. and that you can be successful in so many of these non-traditional non-quantified ways that society just hasn't caught on to yet as signs of success 100 percent. when this kind of mirrors with And it's interesting how like my therapy journey has also kind of mirrored some of this. So Susan and I mentioned now multiple times that we were grad school cohorts Mm -hmm. together. And the final semester, our senior, our like senior, I guess, our second year, that Easter weekend was the first time I realized my mom was sick. Mm -hmm. She had a medical emergency. She was supposed to actually come up. We had gotten tickets to see the Moody Blues, who are her favorite band. I love that. And she wasn't able to come because she wasn't feeling well. And then gets life flighted to UNC. Mm. And so that like Easter week, I was like, I'm not going to be in classes. And so I was supposed to be like, I'm like writing papers from the like medical intensive care Mm. unit at UNC hospital in Chapel Hill. Um, And it kind of started this story about my mom's like the failure of her liver and liver cancer and how that just like walked through my clinical experience. And I'm going to get emotional and teary, which is like Mm. totally fine. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, and then, you know, moving out of community mental health and moving into the world where I am now, where I work as a contractor for a group practice in Wake County. And then last summer in particular, my mom's health had been kind of shaky. And so Susan and I had had some level of conversation around, you know, I think I'm going to be joining your club and I'm really kind of pissed about it. Yep. And then, and this yeah, because you had known about it, I think just from postings or something, yeah, we had had, had some kind of conversation. It. And I think I had known your mom was sick, mm-hmm. you know, through some level of awareness. You know, maybe you know we were not best friends, but we had stayed in contact. You yeah. know, in the area, as you said, we were coworkers. Found I remember finding out we were coworkers and being like, "What the fuck? You work here? Like, what? <laughs> How did I not know that?" And coworkers um, through your dad's passing. Mm-hmm. Like I remember, oh my god, him yeah. entering hospice and yes. us like talking in the like kitchenette of the place that we work <gasps> that's right and so that could have been part of it too. you talking yeah. about the sense of like i don't know what to do and i was like it doesn't matter do whatever you need to do because yeah. it was you know that's just so palpable and again for me noticing my own activation about like oh god this is gonna be me one day yeah i know it like i feel it in my and bones. then years later you like remembered you know like mm-hmm. hey i think i'm coming for you oh it was right around you said it was like summer, right? I think I probably had, po- did I post something about my dad's passing? Cause his death anniversary is in July. Well, so then this was going to be like real fun and like okay. wonky. So <laughs> we had talked kind of about it before and then very unexpectedly, my husband's father passed away tragically in February of 2021. And 
we kind of shared a little bit about it and you had reached out and been like, I don't yes. have any idea if like he would be interested in this. And also like, shout out to Trent. I love you very much. You're the best. We love you, Trent. Um, and she's like, I don't know if he would find this helpful, but like, I don't want him to think that he's alone because while I have had a lot of loss in my life, Trent has not experienced that same experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of his friends hadn't either. Like yeah. he didn't have multiple people he knew. Um, and so you had reached out and I was like, well, yeah. And also probably this too. And that was in February of 2021. That's right. And it's then all coming back to me now. Entered hospice the beginning of June. Yep. And so. Ooh, deep breath. This conversation around success and failure again, because did I do enough? for her was i there enough was i able to balance the work of my clients because like y'all this is so dumb i like (laughs) i basically emailed my boss and i was like okay fun fact this is a thing that's happening i'm moving to my hometown i'm like gonna move to my hometown and be with my dad because i don't have any idea what the timeline is and again shout out to Trent because he was such a trooper i was like okay i'm leaving and he's like oh okay he's like okay bye love you you guys are married at this point right yeah Yeah, we've been married for um a little under two years and he was like bye bye gonna go live with at home (laughs) in covid like it's just bananas and so you know i moved into my parents home and moved into like it was not my childhood bedroom because my parents had moved but like what was my bedroom yeah and this is so wild to think about i'm still seeing a full caseload of clients totally virtually my parents church in the church that i grew up in was kind enough to allow me to basically use an unused room in the church oh wow to see clients virtually so you weren't at home you were in the church right i was like walking distance the church is like two blocks from my parents house okay so i would like go there see a chunk of clients come home for a break in the day be with my mom go back to work come back and then my dad and i would do like the night shift basically it is and this is just because the memory popped up for me when you say this. So I hope this is okay that I'm an adding an interjection. Please, by all means. It makes me think about when my dad entered hospice as well. It was, um, as again, y'all who may be familiar with hospice or maybe not, but we'll share a little bit about it. It is comfort care. There is yeah. no life-saving intervention being applied to somebody's life. It is strictly designed to remove all life-saving interventions. Mm-hmm. You are there to receive comfort and love and support until the body does its natural process yes. of death. And so it can last two days, mm-hmm. 10 hours, weeks. Um, and there's in-home hospice, which is something my mom experienced. And then there's also hospice in a facility. Yes. When my dad was placed in hospice, it was in life trans- or in Transitions Life Care, which absolutely shout out to them. Yeah. Incredible place. If your loved one has to die in a facility and you live in Wake County, or even if you don't, I don't care, like move here and go to Transitions. <laughs> so I remember I was still working for Community Mental Health and I did in-home therapy, which meant I created a caseload and I went to a caseload of people's homes for hours at a time. And I have vivid memories of getting up every morning, driving to transitions, hanging out with my dad for like an hour, an hour and a half. This is like before my day would start at 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. And mm-hmm. going to people's homes to care about whatever the F they have going on, <laughs> right, in their lives, and then going back to transitions. Like yeah. the dichotomy between this idea of like, you're dying, and yeah. I'm like going to hang out with you and make sure I spend all this time with you, and now I'm trying to save somebody else's life. Yes. And what's happening to mine? yeah yes yeah literal chaos i mean i have just like the wildest 
I don't know how that was functioning. The day my dad passed, ended up dying, I remember coming into work like on any normal Wednesday because my dad lived much longer than expected. And I remember walking in like, oh, I got to go see a client at 930. It's going to take me 30 minutes to get there. So it's like 730 now, like whatever time it was. I'm like walking in. They're like, hey, are you working today? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to like hang out just like my normal route. You know, they know you Mm -hmm. by that time, like hanging out. And then they're like, no, you should not go to work today. And I, it finally hit me then that I had been living what felt like a very double life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. And it's just, it's also, you know, I don't know if you had the same experience at hospice, like my mom had in-home hospice and we like, it was such a gift Mm -hmm. that my family was able to do that. And also, I'm going to get teary again because I love my mom and I'm going to talk about her. So she was so talented at building these beautiful friendships and her friends showed up for her. In the most incredible way. Yeah, I'm so envious of your mom. Like, that's what I want for my life. I want those lifelong friendships when I'm old and gray. And that are like, because you said like they came and like decorated your house, right? For (laughs) your mom's birthday this year. I'm like, that's incredible. So like, you know, and I, I could talk about this for forever. But so it's like my dad and I, and we were able to hire some supportive care um, to help like with my mom. Because at this point, you know, it was a very sharp decline. Like I remember we had our like last boat ride. My parents have a pontoon boat and we have a river house and we had our last boat ride Memorial Day weekend. And less than a week later, she's entering hospice. And or I guess maybe a, like a week and a half later. And so there was this sharp decline in her movement and her energy. And, you know, the hospice folks are really lovely and they come in with all the pamphlets. And so I read all of them because that's what she, what I think you should do. Like in my brain, I'm like, oh, I'm a good reader. I should read all of this, mm-hmm. which also... Go in control, right? What do I have control over? Right. And yeah. in the end, was like trash anyway, because like half of <laughs> it nothing. wasn't actually accurate to nope. what I experienced and oh, just such a wild ride. But because my mom was so gifted at creating and preserving these beautiful relationships and her friends, just this incredible group of people particularly women who showed up in such phenomenal ways like would come and would help my dad and I in like taking physical care of my mom and I'm being mindful to also like preserve her dignity and you know what a gift that was that Mm -hmm. it wasn't strangers it wasn't someone that she didn't know in a place she didn't know like she'd been successful yeah. in doing that so that when this day had come, there wasn't, quote unquote, this perceived failure that I didn't have the support system when I would need it the most. A hundred percent. And so I am eternally grateful for that. And also acknowledging, you know, I've referenced a couple of times that I've had a lot of loss in my life. Two of my mom's very best friends had passed away prior to this to different types of cancer. Um, and in some varying like levels of similarity and difference in that process and so just again that plagued with these thoughts of like did I do enough Mm -hmm. which there's not any indication that I didn't but it's my own sense of like this is a woman who's done everything for me have I done enough to honor her in the time that I could 
And I think for me, that was this watershed moment around this idea of success. Because, you know, I had been seeing literally some of my best revenue months were last summer. I don't know how, I don't know why, because I'm juggling this like waking up at three and four in the morning to like trade nighttime shifts with my dad so that he can go back to his room and get some sleep in a bed. And I come up front and like be with my mom, you know, that's just bananas to imagine. Mm -hmm. But this idea of like, what if it's instead the relationships, the people who are present, how that matters more than any of the other things that I believed or perceived to be indicators of success. Mm -hmm. And it's also dramatically shifted kind of since then what a my capacity is and what my desires are around what I want to prioritize. Because I could not have done that if I was still teaching. Like it's such a gift to be in, you know, there were terrible, horrible things with COVID. And for me personally, it allowed telehealth to Mm -hmm. be an option. So it allowed me to continue to pay my bills and do the things I needed to financially while also being able to be present for my mom and for my dad in what was this just pivotal and painful experience, but also one that you know, having kind of also lived both sides of the spectrum, you know, living through my husband's experience of the loss of his dad. I would not wish either. And I'm working to see the gratitude in what I had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have lots of thoughts that I'm working to put into words, but I loved what you said about how this experience and just on top of the other experiences you've had with loss have forced you to reckon with what it means to be a failure or to be a success or to have failure and success and redefine what that means. And, you know, I kind of think about your mom that what I had said a little while ago is that she was successful in creating this amazing group of friends and having these people in her life and someone may view what her death as a failure however it more seems like a success of what she was able to cultivate and she was able to raise you and she was able to give you so many things and to create this wonderful person that seems like a pretty damn good success shout out to sandy she's the best we love sandy and like i think that's true where it was the failure of her body, but not the failure of her or right. her spirit. Absolutely. It's a very important differentiation to make that it's a failure of our physical body. And at the end of the day, though, that's the end goal of a human is that your body will eventually give out. You know, we don't, we're not immortal. We don't have this never ending longevity that's going to happen to us. And so, again, like reframing this idea of what success in life looks like what success in career, in personal, and professional, whatever it is looks like versus failure. When you look at our body, it just did what it was supposed to do. In too early, there was something that got in the way and caused it to shut down earlier than we would have liked and hoped. Yeah. For sure. So yeah, I think it's, you know, it's one of those big moments that allows for this massive shift mm-hmm. in priorities. And I wonder, you know, if you had, you know, I know you've also experienced loss, you know, how have those things shaped 
the decisions that you make and then how you sort of redefine what your goals are. I think, I think it changes all the time. You know, I know my life significantly changed after the death of my dad. I became a very different person, not at my core. My core has always been the same. I think many people would attest to that, but where I invested my time and energy really changed and what I found important really changed. Mm -hmm. And what I was willing to put up with really changed. Didn't have a lot of time or space for people's bullshit. Yeah. Meeting people I didn't ever plan to hang out with again. I really <laughs> stopped doing that and just investing in people that meant a lot to me. Because again, I mean, your mom is such a testament to that of like, I would want that one day. That if my body decides to fail at an earlier time, then I would appreciate it. I'd really like to hope that I leave a legacy behind of cultivating amazing friendships and that would be success to me and that I would have led a decent career and I would have made an impact on somebody's life and you know all this ties back together with what you were just saying of that even though your students didn't have f three fours and fives on EOGs to pass what do you think now about being a successful teacher now that you've had these experiences and redefining failure and success I mean to like make it a bit light I've also like dramatically shifted my beliefs about like what matters in education and my expectations in education. Mm -hmm. And I still think, I mean, I would not be a great teacher in the public school classroom anymore because I would absolutely <laughs> not care. They'd be like, oh, you need to have your objectives on the board. No, I no, don't. I don't. Don't care. Um, Thank you. Don't care about that at all. Or like your students need to, no, they don't. I don't care. Um, but so I think for me, when I think about values, part of what comes up is this idea of like, it means more to me as a person to have values that indicate compassion and empathy and respect mm -hmm. and thoughtfulness how that makes you such a better person yeah. like than whether you got a freaking a in algebra right yeah like no one cares Nobody no one's cares. ever asked me what i made with my gpa when i graduated grad school i know exactly what it is i also remember my gpa from undergrad but it doesn't matter <laughs> you know like those are such silly things oh god the amount of clients i see that are like but what if I don't have this grade or this grade or I don't do this or I don't do that? And I'm like, do you know what GPA your doctors had in medical school? And they're like, well, no. And I'm like, okay, because uh -huh. it doesn't matter. Right. Doesn't We don't want to know. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. And you also may not even know what school they went to. Right. Like, nobody cares. The things that nobody matter. Nobody cares. Oh. It's so true. But it feels so powerful at the time. And so I have, again, that like swell of empathy because I'm like, oh, I vividly remember what this feels like and what that belief or understanding is, mm -hmm. even if in the grand scheme of things, it's so silly. It's so silly. And I think, like you said, in life and in death, you really start to figure out what your priorities are and what matters to you. Oh, for sure. And... You know, also, it's shifted a lot about, how to say this gently, and with a lot of compassion and love, it's shifted also what I'm willing to pour into, mm -hmm. and even, like, some really incredible friendships that served me for a long time at one point may not be as meaningful, because I don't have the capacity to both process my own grief, do the things that I, like have to do as a member of society and also either educate you about my grief 
or manage your feelings about oh, my experience. That's a whole nother. We just need to have like a DPC podcast. I need like 12 <laughs> mics. I need everybody in the room because I think we could all attest to that. It will be seven hours long. <gasps> I'm so excited. Okay, we're going to plan it. <laughs> part and one, part two, part three. <laughs> there's going to be a whole season. It should be like six episodes. Um, you mentioned pouring in to like people and things. Talk yeah. to us a little bit about if you feel okay to transition in that regard yeah. to what are you pouring into now? What are you doing to take care of yourself now oh. that you've been able to come to terms with failure and success? For me, a lot of that is looking like really just leaning heavily into relationships. Mm-hmm. So friendships, my marriage, um, the relationship I have with my dad. You know, we were joking earlier about like the crisis phone. And yeah. um, we've talked about this before that like if you lose a parent, sometimes you can have this hypervigilant around the one that's living and this like panic, which was also fun. I don't think we've had this conversation. My dad tore some ligaments in his leg right before <laughs> we were supposed to go on the cruise and like getting that phone call, Trent and I are in Winston-Salem. And I'm like, I, it's midnight. I don't, I can't, I don't know what to do. And he's like, I'm not going to go to the hospital. They can't help me there. And I'm just like, what is Banging your head against the wall. You're like, what? It's happening. But acknowledging like, I, there is still some like anxiety I have about turning my phone on silent. So I've like met that by using like sleep and focus apps where I can like only let certain numbers through. I love that. Um, And I think that's so valuable. You know, uh, I'll, I'll say this just a brief aside. The day my dad died, my phone has been on silent and it has never come off silent again. Yeah. And that was five years ago mm-hmm. it i just don't need it yep now i love my significant other and there'd be some <laughs> yeah. people in my life but i'm like also like if you're calling me i do <laughs> something's wrong like if you're dying don't call me call 911 like you need to actually call someone that's going to come get you not yeah. that i won't come get you but like i think it just changed this like if I really, the I tra- urgency. yeah, the urgency has changed. I track all my friends. I mean, like if I'm, if my significant other is somewhere else that I'm not with and like, I think that there's a need for it. Absolutely. Like, can he get a hold of me? 100%. Now, can I get a hold of him? I don't know. But you know, this is just the very real situation of it. It's like, I stopped needing my phone on loud. Yeah. I got the call that I needed to get and that was it. Mm-hmm. And I think too, there's also, you know, in my mom's like journey of illness, there were multiple life flights. There were multiple crises. And so like feeling that hypervigilance on my phone, it's taken almost a year. My mom passed away on September 11th of 2021. And it took right about a year for me to not feel that like overarching like mm-hmm. need to have it and be that aware of it. Um, and some of that has been supported by like behavioral changes I've done where I can yeah. still get what I need without being flooded with other things mm-hmm. that aren't as significant to me, to be really frank. Um, but Absolutely. yeah, again, that like reprioritization of what is it that matters. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, friendships and relationships are definitely amazing and a huge part of what's like filling my cup. Also, and shout out to Katie for this, kind of reigniting a passion for reading I had really struggled with reading during grad school because there was not time. No. No. And still kind of have a lot of like aversion to things that are nonfiction, whether that be like books for work or just general nonfiction because my brain's like, no, we're not going to work that hard. (laughs) Um, But a lot to take in. Yes. But digging back into the process of reading has been really lovely for me. Good. Um, And really prioritizing I have several friends who have small children 
And that means that their schedules are complicated and being able to kind of reprioritize time with those folks Mm -hmm. and to get to see them in roles that have shifted. It's just been really beautiful. I love that. And so I think that's been something that I have found myself really pouring into and feeling excited about. Yeah. And your kitty cats. They're the best. I mean, I understand some folks don't love pets and I can conceptualize that. And I also just really love mm-hmm. pets. We are hoping to get a dog <gasps> at some point in the future. Oh my God. I'm excited for you. So we have a fenced in backyard. And so mom and I'm like, let's do it now. And Trent's like, let's be responsible. I'm like, fine. <laughs> Thank you, Trent, for like reining us in. <sighs> because the mom and will just run a rescue. But we also have to be mindful. I, again, I'm a bit overprotective. Again, y'all are very shocked by now. Um, and we have two cats. And so it's absolutely imperative that whatever dog we get has to be good with cats. Yeah. Yep. Oh yeah. That was my requirement for sure. Yeah. Our dog is a cat. So it <laughs> works out very well. Any words of wisdom or any phrases that you feel like you've been living your life by lately or impact your life in some way right now? There's a lot of them. Um, it's funny. I think about like a client and I were talking about this, the idea like theirs is this, like I'm living my eras V V V Taylor Swift. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's a bit cheesy, but one that was really, really helpful for me, particularly late last summer and last fall, um, was the idea of we can do hard things and this too shall pass Mm -hmm. and not necessarily the overarching this too shall pass, but like this moment, this misery, this current emotional experience is not forever. Mm-mm. And that has been helpful um, for me. Also the concept of like leaning in, like leaning into the moments of joy, leaning into the moments and the breaths of peace and feeling centered and trying to show up more for them because for a long time that was harder. And so being able to access that more now, giving myself permission to like lean into mm-hmm. the things that are bringing me joy or the things that kind of spark a bit of that warm glow. I love that. Thanks. I love that. We don't do enough of that. We're not as a collective doing a great job of trying to be present we're always looking for like what's next when will this end thinking in the past but if you can lean into the moment now what can you get out of that while also remembering that this moment isn't going to last forever right well and i think back on like some of the parts of my life that were the hardest and some of that was compounded by the fact that i was focused on this future casting of what it's supposed to be or what i think it should be Mm -hmm. or kind of being outside of that space And how the antidote to that has been being more present and being more connected and prioritizing that in my life. Yeah. I love that. Thanks. (laughs) Amanda, it's been honestly so wonderful to get this dedicated one-on-one time with you. You know, we talk on a a minimum of a monthly basis, (laughs) send thousands of 
Instagram stories to each other all the time on the daily. Amanda, Trent, and I have this never-ending war of like sending great cat videos to each other. Yes, and all the giveaways. I make sure that I like send to Susan if she hasn't posted. I'm like, wait, do you know about this one? Yes. Wait, do you know about this? I one? so appreciate you being okay with that. I've t- texted yeah. this one group of my friends, and I was like, please get ready for the amount of giveaways I will tag you in this month. Yeah, it's holiday season. Yeah, I will be entering everything. Obviously. Um, and sometimes I have really good luck. So yeah. like, let me win. And, and also bring me with you. Please. Like I try to split <laughs> up yeah, who I share my winnings with because I'm like, okay, if I win all these, I got to take different people. Um, but in, in all of that to say that I'm so grateful for you. And if I had to be a part of a really shitty club, I appreciate that you're in it with me as well. You know, it's interesting, the people that you end up circling back to in your life, you know, not that we would have not continued to cross paths mm-hmm. because of our profession, but now we are absolutely in each other's circle and I'm very grateful for you and just thank you for being so transparent and honest to talk about a really difficult topic especially nowadays of thinking about whether we're failing or we're succeeding in life and I appreciate you hosting the space for both for DPC but also for this because you know I think there can be a lot of shame around grief mm-hmm. and around suffering because there is this idea that it's a failure or that like you're not doing what you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And so by you being so open and vulnerable and hosting this space, both in those spheres, it allows folks to then show up and be vulnerable with you. And that's just really beautiful. So thank y'all for that. Yeah. Thank you. I feel very honored to be able to do it. So I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Mana, for being on. And, you know, just as we always do, y'all, we'll make sure there's some links to resources on here. If anything that we talked about today may have ignited anything in you that you would like to talk to someone about or just feeling any feelings around. So we'll make sure to link those in today's episode. But thank you so much, Amanda. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to I've Been Better. I'm your host, Susan Youngstead please be sure to leave a review and subscribe wherever you consume podcasts and follow us on social media at I've been better dot pod.